Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Todd Kelly. Jesus wasn't just the path to salvation, he was the path to hiking and water skiing and making out with girls. <laughs> that and more, but before that, I want to encourage you to go to adamandeve.com. For a limited time only, you'll get 50% off just about any item. When you select one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs, plus a free exclusive gift. And to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping for your entire order. The exclusive gift. <laughs> is a clit bumper. I mean, you can't tell me you don't have all kinds of uses for clit bumpers in your life. Now, it, it is, actually. You could, you could be a guy like me and still have use for the clit bumper because it's also just a cock ring. It's a cock ring that also, uh, you know, bumps clit. All right, so go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com, whether you bump clit or not. I'll tell you, you might not have time to be bumping clit if you have to go to the post office all the time. But how great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? Well, it is, thanks to Stamps.com. No more limited hours. You can get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule with Stamps.com. You can print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official u.s postage for any letter or package then the mailman picks it up you save money with stamps.com you get exact postage the instant you need it even special postage discounts you can't get at the post office we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code R-I-S-K for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Peter Dow behind me now. We are calling this week's episode Shame. And (laughs) I uh, just wanted to check in about where I am this particular morning that I'm recording this before we go any further, because the theme of today's episode is remarkably apt. I am really feeling the emotion this morning. I am feeling a bit panicky. I feel a little bit like in my intestinal area that someone, you know, there's a little bit of a wound as if I'm recovering from a a stabbing from inside. It was my fault. Yesterday, I was uh, rushing to the airport uh, in Los Angeles to get back to New York City. I'm always rushing to airports these days, and, you know, I was discombobulated, and I knew I had to get that Mother's Day call in. And just as the Uber's showing up, she's calling me, so I'm like, well, fuck it, I gotta take the call started talking to mom and admitted why I was in Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles because the book about the state, my old sketch comedy group, is coming out. It's called The Union of the State. I told her that's why I was there. But as we were talking, after I had told her the book's title, the name of the author, I realized, oh my God, oh my God, I talked about her in the book and when i did that i meant not to ever reveal to her that the book existed oh fuck oh my god folks the phone rang while i was recording that so i stopped the hosting and had a phone call with (laughs) with my parents and now everything is okay or at least for the time being listen to have a better understanding of this whole situation you should go back and listen to the episode of risk called try uh it's absolutely i don't care when you started listening to risk you got to hear the episode called try it's one of the most important ones because it kind of lays out in the beginning of the episode how the show started and what the show is all about and and what my story is basically part of the reason that the show exists is because my mom shamed me a lot when i was a kid there was a lot of Oh my God, Kevin, do you have to laugh so hard at your own jokes? Good Lord, what will the neighbors think when they see you using your hands so much when you talk? Just a few years ago, I was at the funeral of my 17-year-old step-nephew. And my, yeah, the room is filled with crying and stories shared and emoting going on. At one point, my mom pulls me aside into another room and she says, Kevin, if you could just stop using so much facial expression when you talk. And I love my mother. 
And my mother and I were so, so, so close. When I was a toddler, it was so precious to me, that relationship. And so that was the crucible out of which this lunatic you're listening to was forged. The thing of it is, my parents are in their late 70s now. They don't know how to use the internet at all. So they don't have access to the show. And I've admitted on this podcast and other podcasts that in fact, when I was 39 years old, I finally said, enough is enough. I can't keep allowing that repressive, shaming voice that is like this dark storm cloud always hanging over my head to keep me from expressing myself in my work. In the book, in the Union of the State, I say risk was at 39, me rebelling against the voice of my mom in my head. Risk was me saying, hey, I'm going to say, fuck it. Let's be ourselves no matter what. Who's joining me? And seven years in, I can tell you, it is a never-ending process. You never stop peeling away the veils. There are so many stories I have yet to share on this show because I still feel that cloud over my head. You don't get rid of that cloud in one fell swoop. You know, some days it's not there at all. Some days, oh yeah, it's back and it's darker now. But the cloud, the voice in the head, that's one thing. That's psychology. Whereas my mom herself, you know, I worry about really hurting her feelings or scaring her, you know? <sighs> On top of being afraid of getting yelled at again. So just 10 minutes ago, while I was in the midst of recording this, they called mom and dad, and I just flat out told them, look, there's stuff in that book I really, really don't want you to read. Just please don't buy that book. And you know what? They agreed. The way I put it was this. I said, why don't I make you a CD compilation of stories on risk that I think you would really appreciate? Because let's face it, I mean, you know, some of the stories that we've aired on this show might have been too much for you, even if you're a diehard risk listener. Some of the stories that have been pitched to me have been too much for me. <laughs> But I get to say, oh, God, I'm, I can't stomach listening to that. So it's not going on the show. My point is you and I are familiar enough with the show, I would guess, to know, okay, I'm going to stop listening to this story because I can't handle it. But my parents don't have that knowledge and facility. And as embarrassing as it is to admit, yeah, I am a 46-year-old man who became a, a nervous, panicked wreck and had been unable to sleep last night and had been struggling to think straight all morning <sighs> because I'd been dealing with mommy shame. So, so dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to transcend, transcend again, 
and transcend again. Was was my enunciation okay there? <laughs> All right, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the remarkable and wonderful Todd Kelly. It's going to be so great to have Todd back on the show. He's a regular contributor to the Daily Beast and Ordinary Time magazine, and his story was recorded at our recent Seattle show. But before Todd, we're going to hear a story from Simon Bosch, who shared this one at our recent show in Vancouver, Canada. What a treat to visit Vancouver for the first time. Here's Simon Bosch now with a story we call Watershed. struggle with uh, depression and anxiety. Uh, Thank you. And uh, five years ago, I was going through a really, really rough uh, bout of the depression side of that. And like, I I was just going through the most horrible shit. I didn't have a job. Uh, I didn't really have many friends. Uh, I didn't really do anything. I would spend the majority of my time just like hermited in some blankets and I would just kind of spend days like that where I would just look out and be like, well, I'm not going outside today and just be stuck there. And that went on for months and months. I was living in my parents' basement at the time and eventually my mom said, Simon, you've got to get out of here and you have to find a job. And so I did and I went out and uh, I applied to this little pizza place and uh, I, I got in uh, and the first day I started there, I met this girl who was unbelievably beautiful and just amazing and uh, for the story let's call her Samantha and she was so great and she was like five feet tall and just hilarious and she had these gigantic beautiful brown eyes and she laughed at everything I said and she thought I was just really really funny and really great and she made me feel amazing and being around her was just unbelievably fantastic and I was like I'm just gonna stay at this job for a while and see where this goes And so, a couple weeks into it, I'm working away, and Samantha turns over to me and says, "Uh, so what's your deal? Are you you seeing anybody right now? Uh, And I said, no, I'm not seeing anybody. And I thought, well, if she's asking me that, then maybe there could be something between us here. Uh, Truth of the matter was, I was seeing somebody, um, and I had been with her for two years. Uh, and uh, she lived, thank you, hello, yeah. Uh, and uh, she uh, was a performer and she was going to school all the way on the other side of the country and she'd been there for about a month. And uh, I was super unhappy in our relationship and she was kind of the exact opposite of Samantha. Let's call her Charlotte. And uh, she was like really tall and uh, really kind of uh, uh, extremely goal-oriented and really in your face about getting stuff done. And when you're really depressed and anxious, that's not really the best thing to be around. Uh, and, and like I could tell that our relationship was really struggling. One night we were Skyping and uh, she said, good night, there's that whole three hour time difference thing. And uh, I then went to a party at Samantha's house. Uh, we ended up uh, making out that night and uh, we ended up having sex that night. 
And uh, that continued for about two months where I was leading a double life. I would spend some days just Skyping with Charlotte all the time, and then at night I would take Samantha to my car and we would have sex somewhere there. That would just happen a lot, where like neither of them knew about the other one, and it was really, really horrible. And I didn't tell anybody about this. I didn't tell my best friend, I didn't tell my parents, nothing, nobody. Now, speaking of that best friend, uh, his name is Nick, and we spent a lot of time together getting very, very drunk, a lot. And uh, we, would, we would play video games and watch movies and eat pizza and just get wasted a lot. And that's what, what we did. And I think he could tell that there was something in me I, that I was just like, I was really just wrapped up somewhere else in my brain. I was just like a million miles away all the time. And he, he could really tell that something was wrong. My birthday was coming up and he said, hey, Simon, your birthday's coming up. I need you to book three days off around your birthday. And I thought, amazing. And so I get to his house on my birthday and I say, what's going on? He says, we're going camping in the interior of British Columbia, so let's pack up my car. And so he packs it up with some camping supplies. I put four 20 cases of beer in the trunk. Uh, it's caribou, it's not sipping beer, it's getting shittered beer. And uh, I put a whole bunch of other, thank you for caribou. And so I put a whole bunch of other bottles of beer in there. We catch the nine o'clock ferry. By the way, I was living in Victoria at the time. So we caught the nine o'clock ferry and we get on there and he goes into the back and he grabs his laptop for, so that we can watch a movie. I go into the back and I grab a 20 case of beer and I set it in between my legs in the passenger seat. And for the hour and a half duration of the ferry, I proceeded to have 10 cans of beer. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And so uh, the car finally gets off the ferry and there's this really narrow stretch of highway that goes from the ferry out to Vancouver and it's really narrow and there's no, real, there's no shoulder to pull over and we're driving along and I suddenly realize, holy shit, I've just had 10 cans of beer. I need to piss like a crazy person. And then I realize, holy shit, I've just had 10 cans of beer. I am drunk as fuck right now. Because you don't really realize how drunk you are when you're sitting for a while. It just sort of, sort of hits you after a little bit, and it really did. And so I turn over to Nick, and he's driving, and I say, Nick, I need you to pull over right now. I gotta piss immediately. And he's like, there's no shoulder, there's nowhere to pull over. I can't, I can't pull over. Uh, you're just gonna have to wait. And it's like half an hour to the closest town. And I was like, Nick, you gotta pull over right now or else I, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And uh, he used to manage some bands. And so he was like, just do what we do on tour all the time. Take this 16 ounce McDonald's cup that he had in the center console and just piss into the cup. And when you're ready, give me the signal and I'll lower your window, pinch down on your dick and take the contents of the cup and throw them out the window. And I was like, are you fucking insane? I'm not doing that. And he was like, just do it. We do it all the time. It's fine. So, okay, 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 okay sure. And so I get to the edge of the seat and I, I take the cup and I whip my dick out and I, I put it into the cup and I start filling it up and it gets about three quarters of the way full. And I yell, Nick, what do I do? And he's like, well, just pinch down. And so I pinch down. He lowers my window. I take the cup and I throw the contents out of the window as hard as I could. And I could just imagine the guy driving beside us just being like, no, no as the pee just splashes onto his windshield. And so I take the cup, and by the way, pinching down on a stream of urine is extremely painful. And so I then put it back down 
and I put my dick back into the cup and I let go of the stream. And it's even more excruciating pain as you let the stream go again. And it gets like three quarters of the way full. And I yell, oh God, Nick, now! And I pinch down, I take the cup, I throw it as hard as I can. Nick hadn't opened the window. I know. A hundred percent of the urine came back boo, all over my face, all over the center console, all over neck, all over every part of the car. We were drenched in my piss and we reeked of beer. And Nick yells, oh my God. And I start laughing so hard that I let go. And so now, I'm fire hosing through the car. My dick is going crazy through the car. It's hitting the window. It's hitting Nick in the face. And when it would hit the window, uh, he would sort of be laughing. And then it would go and hit him in the face. And he'd go, oh! And then it'd go back to the window and he'd be, we'd be laughing again. And we were just crying these tears of laughter. And, we, and like, it eventually got to that place where some of you are now, thank you, where it's dying down. And you're just like... <laughs> and the piss sort of dribbles to an end. And it was sort of in that laughing stupor that I had this amazing moment of clarity that I just like, I forgot about all of the horrible bullshit that was going on that was entirely my fault and that I, I was ruining two people's lives back home and I, I just completely forgot about all that. I was completely living in the moment. I was having the best time of my life drenched in my own urine with my best friend. And I just forgot about all my problems. And then it sort of just hit me where I was like, I'm completely afraid of change and growing up. And I'm just stuck on this, on, on this stupid idea that I can just stay a little kid forever. And I mean, that's why like, I'm sort of latching on to this younger girl at this pizza place and then like and I'm, I'm avoiding this real life that's ahead of me you know this person who's all the way across the country who has her life together who wants to get it going and who I'm just trying to distance myself from that so hard so Nick and I ended up having the greatest weekend ever we just got really drunk a lot and uh, when we got back it was like all of that weight just came crashing right back on my shoulders. I was right back where I left off. Only this time, Charlotte had moved back home. Her school was done. And I developed this really, really bad habit of lying to Charlotte constantly about really small, stupid, insignificant shit that doesn't even matter. I was in an acting class and like I was actually pursuing my dream. I was actually doing something good, but I, for some reason, told her that I was at work that day. And uh, she decided to go visit me at work at the pizza place. And so uh, she walks in there. Samantha is at the counter and she walks up and says, hi, is Simon there? And Samantha says, oh no, he's not working today. And uh, Charlotte says, oh, okay. Well, can you tell him that his girlfriend just came by to say hi, to say hi? And uh, Samantha just looked at her right in the eyes and said, I've been fucking your boyfriend for two months. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a pretty awesome boss-ass move. <laughs> like, holy shit. 
great job. And so I get out of my acting class and I just have a text message waiting for me and all it says on there is just fuck you and it's from Samantha. And as soon as I read that, I start getting a phone call from Charlotte and I pick it up and she says, hey, where are you? And I say, oh, I'm just at work. I can't really talk right now. And she says, oh, really? That's weird. I just visited you at work and you weren't there. And I met Samantha. And I said, after a few moments of silence, can I meet you at my house? And so I met her there and I walk right up to her and I'm just saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I never meant to hurt you. And she just says, you are such a fucking asshole. And that just ripped right through my chest and just, it was like getting shot in the heart and it just exploded. And it was horrible and she just stormed off after that. And I thought, oh God, now I have to do some damage control at the pizza place. So I drive over to the pizza place, I walk in, and everybody I've ever worked with is standing there. And Samantha's at the very back, and I see her, and so I start walking towards her, and there's just this gauntlet of death glares just staring at me. And all I hear is, you fucking asshole, you fucking asshole, you fucking asshole, running through my head. And I walk right up to her, and as I'm about to say, I'm really sorry, she turns and punches me really hard right in the solar plexus. And it was like getting shot in the heart again. I was wheezing as I was going, I'm so sorry, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you, I'm so sorry. And she yells, what the fuck, it's my birthday! I wish I was making that part up. Uh, and, yeah, God, yeah. And uh, she storms out. And my manager's standing right behind me and I turn around and I say, I'm sorry, I can't work here anymore. I mean, obviously. <laughs> and so I, I leave and like, I didn't feel anything though. I didn't feel a thing. Like I was completely numb inside. And it took weeks and weeks until any sort of emotion came up. And the emotion that came up was just this, this really heavy feeling of sadness and regret and shame. And really strangely, this giant relief came over me, where I felt like I didn't have to lead this double life anymore. I was allowed to just be myself. I was allowed to just live. And that felt amazing, you know? And I found that sometimes, you just have to lose complete control of yourself and ultimately of your bladder <laughs> in order to see yourself with any sort of clarity. And that's what happened. Thank you so much. hardly piss straight with fear. That's nothing. I'm about to rain on your parade. I personally draw the line at golden showers. Somebody just pee on me. Pee on my chest. I let you piss on me. Oh, that's disgusting. This is definitely the wettest I've ever been. Look at this mess. Can you bleach out urine stains? <laughs> I recall the night the stars were out of sight. We were riding around in the rain. I'm asshole pissed on my life!
I went to a Christian evangelical summer camp for the same reason I did every other stupid thing I did as a young man, which is that um, a young girl asked me to do it. <laughs> it was in math class, and she came up to me and she said, you look, I, I know you're new here at school, and in a few weeks we're all going to be going to summer camp, and we'd like to see if you'd like to come with us. You seem like a nice guy. And I said, yes, I would love to. And, and I was actually fairly thrilled at the invitation. My parents had just moved from Los Angeles to Portland, Oregon, and I didn't know anybody, and I was terrified. I was terrified of the school, I was terrified of everyone around me, and because my parents had moved up there just a few weeks before summer, I was afraid that I was gonna go through all of summer vacation with zero friends. So two weeks later, I actually found myself on this ship on my way to British Columbia with a couple of other hundred teenagers on their way to camp. And I got to hang out with some kids from my new school, and they were nice, and I liked them, and it was going great. And even better than that, I got to meet this girl from another school, and she had honey blonde hair and a Dodger cap. And the way I felt about it was I was from Los Angeles. She was wearing a Los Angeles Dodgers cap. And so it was clear to me that we were destined to be together. And when we finally got to the camp in British Columbia, it was unbelievably beautiful. It was like somebody had taken this camp and just plopped it down in the middle of nowhere where no human had been for hundreds of miles ever. And it smelled of pine trees and the sea and hot dogs from the mess hall. And as soon as we got there, we got shown to our cabin. And our cabin were just like the cabins you read about in stories when you're a kid. There's like no electricity and there are no windows and all there is for any light is like a little tiny gas uh, thing but it it barely puts off any light and so even in broad daylight it's dark and it's primal and it's so cool and after we unpacked we got a wander around the camp and there is hiking and there is music and there is fishing and there is water skiing and it's just amazing and then we go to dinner and it's hamburgers and hot dogs all that we can eat and then the kind old man who owns the camp gets up and he makes a speech and he makes us feel so welcome and he says I want you to know this is a Christian camp because I am a Christian but if any of you are afraid that we're just going to be talking about religion, don't worry, because I don't believe that camp is a place to teach kids about religion. I think we should have fun and not worry about religion all week. And that was exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> so I thought we were on the same page. And then after that, we go back to our cabin and we get to know my cabin counselor, Counselor John. And Counselor John is one of those people, you could put him down anywhere on the planet and within an hour, he would be the most popular person wherever you put him down. He was charismatic, he was all American, he was steel jawed. He was improbably good looking. Like, picture Chris Pine's really good looking younger brother and you get an idea of what this guy looked like. And he liked me. And he was interested in me, which was, mind-blowing because I was still living by the high school laws of the jungle where people who looked like Counselor John didn't like people who looked like me. And then, right before we got to bed, Counselor John said, here's the thing, if you know or if you see a girl 
that you really like, let me know. I bet I know her counselor, and I'll help fix you up. And I bet you'll be making out with her before the end of the week. (laughs) And so as I went to sleep that night with visions of the blonde-haired girl in the Dodger cap in my head, I was just thinking, this is the best summer camp ever. (laughs) The next morning, I woke up. We all went to breakfast, and the kind old man got up to give his normal breakfast talks. We find out he did it every day. And he said, yesterday I talked to you about religion and how I didn't want to talk about it. And that's true. Because religion means myth. And myth means a lie. But Christianity, (laughs) Christianity is the truth. And that's why I'm going to make it my mission to make sure that every kid here except Jesus Christ as his personal savior before he goes home. And I was okay. And then he said, what I would like everybody to do is if you're willing to give your life to Jesus right now, I want you to stand up and I want you to come over to this side of the mess hall and stand with me. And about 25% of the kids did. And the rest of us were like, whatever. (laughs) And then they released us. And we went to what we discovered was going to be our regular daily routine. And our regular daily routine after breakfast was we would go do group activities through the morning and through the early afternoon. And then we would stop in at our cabin for a brief counseling session with our cabin counselors. And then we were free to go do whatever we wanted for the late afternoon and for the evening. Except what we found out when we got to our cabin that first day Those who had stood up and given their lives to Christ gave a quick prayer and they were allowed to go. The rest of us had to stay and do counseling for the rest of the day and the evening. And so it became obvious to everybody in my cabin who had not stood up and walked across the room was that Jesus wasn't just the path to salvation. He was the path to hiking and water skiing and making out with girls. So the next morning, the kind old man stands up and says, invites people to come. And this time, most everybody in the camp goes, oh, yeah, I totally give my life to Christ, and moves over to the other side to stand with him. And this goes on for the next few days, and each day, more and more people move over until day five, where I discover I am the last heathen standing staring across the room at 200 campers who are staring back at me. And as they're staring back at me, I am trying hard to look cool and nonchalant and like this really doesn't bug me. But the truth is, it's pretty devastating because the only reason I'd come to camp is because I wanted to fit in and I'd wanted to be part of a group. And now this camp had made me what every single 16-year-old secretly fears of being, which is different. And so every day, after breakfast, I would go do group activities, and then I would go and I would have what I would call the battle of wills with Counselor John in our cabin. And I would like to tell you that this battle of wills was this great theological intellectual discussion. But in fact, every day it was just hours of Counselor John saying, Todd, why don't you just Invite Jesus into your heart. That's all you do. Just say the words. Just say the words. And he'll come in and he'll feel you up and you'll feel it. And I would just stare at the wall and glower. And as the days went on, Counselor John went from liking me 
to being a little annoyed with me to just despising me. Because remember, the free time wasn't just for us, it was for counselors as well. And Counselor Jean wanted to be out water skiing and making out with other counselors, but he couldn't because of me. And so by the end of the week, the, why don't you just give it a try, turned into more of a, don't be such a dick. <laughs> but as terrible as those times in the cabin were, they were actually the part of the day I looked forward to the most. I don't actually think that any of the counselors ever told the other campers to shun me. I think what happened was it just became clear that I was not one of them. And for the first couple of days where I was just the last guy standing, I'd get a few nods of respect, a few thumbs up to say, we're, like, we respect that. But sooner or later, I became the other. And things began to get very hostile. Sometimes it was passive aggressive. Sometimes it was just plain mean. Around day six, the people in my cabin, every time that I would go to brush my teeth at night, would take a pitcher of water and they'd dump it on my bed so that when I came to bed, I'd have to sleep in cold, shivery sheets. On day eight, one of the campers decided that my name, Todd, to his ear, sounded a lot like the word fag. And he thought it would be funny if you just sort of conjected them together. And for that day, my name was Tag. And then the next day, everybody decided that that was too much effort. And so I just became Fag. At one point, near the very end, I actually tried to make eye contact across the mess hall with the girl uh, with the Dodger cap. And she just gave me this look of disgust. And she turned back with her friends. The last night, the night before we left, Counselor John was in a really good mood, and I couldn't figure out what it was, why he was in a good mood, but it turned out it was because the old man was coming for me. And the old man came into the cabin while we were having our counseling session, and he sat me down, and he said, son, Satan has taken your heart, and he has shrunken it. And you don't know it now, but if you don't give your life to Christ right now, before you leave tomorrow, you are going to regret it for the rest of your life. Because what you don't know right now is this. People know when they meet people with withered and shrunken hearts. And people for the rest of your life are going to pretend that they love you, but no one will ever love you. Ever. And my response to him was sort of, yeah, whatever, I don't care. But here's the thing, I, I actually believed him. By that point in the camp, not only did I believe in God, I wanted very much to give my life to Christ. And there were only two things that had really been holding me back those last few days. The first was that my hatred had been growing for Counselor John, just as his has been growing for me, and I didn't want to lose. <laughs> and the second was Luke 14 which every night in the cabin, when we would all gather back together, all of us, our counselors would go over with us. Luke 14, if you don't know, is the part in the Bible that says you should turn your back on your family of origin. And my family would never have turned their backs on me, and there was no way that I was going to turn my back on them. And so every moment where I thought I would cave at the end of the day, they'd bring up Luke 14, and that would steal my resolve. 
but I really believed no one was ever going to love me again. The next day, we went back, got on the ferry, headed back to the United States. It was about a six-hour ride. And it was actually harder, because at the camp, I'd had Counselor John to push against, and I'd had Luke 14 brought up all the time. But on the boat, there wasn't Counselor John, and there wasn't Luke 14. There was just a couple hundred kids that wanted nothing to do with me. And with about an hour to go before we reached port, I caved in. I went down to the lowest level of the ferry where all the luggage was, and where I was pretty sure I was alone, and I got down on my knees, and I did exactly what Counselor John had been telling me to do for 10 days. I bowed my head, and I said, with absolute sincerity, Jesus Christ, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Please enter my heart. Please make me whole with you. And then, nothing happened. There was no feeling of love. There was no sense of being entered by Christ or God. I felt exactly the way I felt five minutes before I made the prayer. And for me as a 16-year-old, having gone through the week that I had, there was only one possible explanation for me not feeling anything. And that was that God and Jesus had rejected me. Which was weird, right? Because loving everybody, forgiving everybody, like, that's kind of Jesus' thing. You know, he, you murder someone, rapists, people who commit genocide. You can do anything and Christ will forgive you and God will love you. Anybody. Anybody but me. And I just broke down and I started sobbing. And I sobbed for a very long time. And I'm not talking crying. I'm talking that heaving chest sobbing that you do where you can't control yourself, where afterwards your chest just hurts. And I don't know how long I'd sat there sobbing on the floor amongst all the suitcases and the baggage. But at one point, I looked up. And standing over me was the blonde girl with the Dodger cap. And she asked me, what's wrong? And I had no pride at that point, so I just told her. I told her I'd given my life to Christ and that Christ had rejected me. And she looked at me for a minute and she said, it's going to be okay. And then she leaned down and she kissed me. And it was warm, and it was wet, and it was sexy, and it was kind, and it was loving. And then she sat down next to me and she put her fingers through mine and she held my hand for about the last half hour until we got to port. Didn't say anything, just held my hand. And then we got to port and everyone 
exited the ship. To this day, I, I, I can't remember, did I never know her name or have I forgotten it? I don't know. Everyone who I'd gone to school with who'd given their life to Christ, probably not surprisingly, immediately went back to their old lives. And when school started the next September, the story of how I was the one person who didn't cave in spread around school and I sort of became a hero. And that was cool and I liked that. But no one in my school ever knew that I actually had caved in. And at the end it wasn't I who rejected God, but the other way around. And the other thing that they never knew is that the kind old man was actually right about one thing. I've spent the rest of my life desperately wanting to believe. I read the Torah, I read the Bible, I read the Koran. I just really want to believe. A little while later in life, I lost both of my parents to very long, very hard battles with cancer. And there was nothing I wanted during those times than to believe. But the kind old man was right. I lost it. I lost my chance. And I'll never believe in God. But that kiss, that kiss that was so full of kindness and human grace, to this day, I believe in that kiss to the bottom of my withered and shriveled heart. Thank you. Traveling these wide roads for so long My heart's been far from you Ten thousand miles gone Oh, I want to come near and give Every part of me But there's blood on my hands And my lips are unclean in my darkness, I remember Mama's words reoccur to me. Surrender to the good law and then wipe your slate clean. Take me to your river. I wanna go. I'll go. This is Risk. This is the wonderful Leon Bridges behind me now. We just heard from Todd Kelly. You can find him on Twitter at R-T-O-D Kelly. Before that, a very P-tastic 
interstitial by our own... Oh, fuck. <laughs> I keep getting calls. <laughs> by our own episode editor, Jeff Barr, with help from our friend, Gel Soul. Now, our final story today is extraordinary. This young lady had never shared a story live on stage before. I was so moved and so impressed from the first time I heard her pitch. This was at our Seattle show recently. It was a riveting and beautiful way to end the show that night, and it's going to end our episode this week. Here now is Tao Madsen with a story we call The One That Got Away. Take me to your river Lord, please let me know. Take me to your river. I want to know. So my family and I were immigrants um, who moved from Vietnam to Seattle when I was about two years old. And before I get into the story, I just want to give you guys a little bit of a background on my parents who are basically the subjects of the story. So my mom and dad are both the oldest of their siblings. And a little bit about my dad. He was born to a mom who basically, for lack of better terms, slept around a lot and had kids from various different men. She was also a gambling addict. Um, and didn't really work a day in her life, though. If you consider fortune-telling a job, then she had a job. Um, And she never really changed a diaper either because um, she grew up with rich parents who owned a company in Vietnam, and so they had maids or either that her parents changed um, her kids' diapers for her. So, Um, But after the... During the Vietnam War... My dad's family lost their company to the Viet Cong, so subsequently um, he grew up very poor and had to kind of um, work most of his life to take care of his uh, younger siblings and his, uh, his mom and basically did not have an education, so considerably illiterate because he didn't really know how to read or write. And my mom, on the other hand, actually um, went to up to high school but had to drop out because um, her mom... Uh, needed her to work full-time as well to take care of her five younger half-siblings. My mom had a very abusive stepdad, um, and her mom never really stepped in to really do anything about it. She kind of stepped back and just kind of watched everything happen. So the difference between my mom and dad was that she knew a little more English than he did because um, she took some classes in a refugee camp that we lived in in the Philippines before we came to the U.S. in preparation for the U.S. So... Six years later, I'm eight years old um, in the U.S., and my mom gets her first job. And this is pretty significant because um, my dad was pretty controlling and a a jealous person, so um, he never allowed her to pursue a higher education or even a work for that matter for fear that she would find somebody else better than him and leave him. But um, around the time that they had their fourth child, which was my youngest brother, they decided that they needed the extra income. So my mom got a job on assembly line packaging seafood at a company in Seattle. 
So one Friday night, she was working her evening shift, and uh, my siblings, my dad, and myself, per usual, were just kind of gathered around her living room watching um, kind of like poorly dubbed Hong Kong movies, and we just had this whole series that we just watch over and over again. And then the phone rang, so my dad paused the movie, answered the phone, as I observed, he really didn't um, have much of a, of a conversation with whoever it was on the other line. He was more or less receiving um, the message and just kind of responding with uh-huhs and okays. And he sat down and watched the movie, um, continued watching the movie series with us. And um, at around 11 or 12 o'clock, he put us all to bed and went to pick my mom up um, from work. So the next day, Saturday, my siblings and I were up and about, and I found it a little unusual because my parents were in the room for uh, quite some time, but I didn't really think much of it. So around lunchtime, my siblings and I were in the playroom right next door to the kitchen, and I hear my parents' room door open, and I hear them walking down the stairs, and they walk past the playroom. And I took a glance up, and I see my dad kind of trailing behind my mom. And I look over at my mom, and I see her lips had a little bruising and blood on it. Um, but I didn't think much of it. It just kind of went over my head. And so we were called um, over to the kitchen table to have our meal. We're eating our meal. My dad's at the kitchen table with us. But my mom kind of kept her distance and um, just hung out over at the kitchen, scarfing down her meal. And before we knew it, I was told to clean up after my siblings, and I watched my dad escort my mom back into the room. So at this point, hours and hours go by, um, and my parents were still in the room, and it was the afternoon and the evening. It wasn't until I answered a phone call from my mom's work asking where she was and why she didn't show up, I and mean, it wasn't until then when I realized something was going on here. So later I learned that that phone call that my dad had received the Friday night before was from a woman at my mom's work um, who we knew they didn't get along at work. She talked about this person before. And this woman called my dad accusing my mom of cheating on him, which was entirely not true. But my dad's a jealous guy and he took this information and without hesitation or question, he acted on it. The next day was Sunday, and everything was still the same. They were still in the room. So it was clear to me at this point what was happening. So throughout the day, I kind of paced around my parents' room, and then I go back to hang out with my siblings and just kind of pretending I didn't know what was going on as if I was trying to protect them. The times that I walk over to my parents' room, I'd put my ears on the door. I could hear the bickering. I can hear the yelling. I can hear my dad in Vietnamese screaming, you fucking whore. Just tell me the truth. You did it. I know. And I can hear her saying, that's a lie, and you know that. That's a lie. Other times, with my ears on the door, I can hear the impact of his fist to her face. And I can hear her fragile 90-pound, 4-foot-11 body being thrown from the bed to the ground or against the wall. I can hear her begging, stop. What, what's going to happen to the kids if something happens to me? You need to stop. 
So throughout the day, I just sat by the door with my ears on the door. And the moments when there was actual silence terrified me because it felt like every second of silence, she was a second closer to death. All of a sudden, the door opened, and I look up, and it's my dad. He didn't even question as to why I was sitting there, but instead he just kind of flagged me to come into the room. And so I was a little confused, but I I stood up and I jumped at the opportunity to come into this room to see my mom and to see what's happening. And I walk into this room that was just instantly cold. It was dark. The lights were off. The curtains were down, but there was just enough sheerness um, to allow a little bit of daylight to break through the curtains. And in the daylight, you can kind of see the speckle of dust kind of floating around. And so I look down at the carpet, and I can see speckle of blood on the ground. And I can see the contents of my mom's purse scattered. And over to my right was her dresser, and on the dresser were little framed pictures of my siblings and I. And I look up, and there's just huge mirror. And the moment that I looked into the mirror, I can see a reflection of just this woman that I did not even recognize. I can see her lips were swollen and cut and bruised, and I can see her eyes were black and blue, and there's a little bit of yellow, maybe from bruises that were healing from days before. And I can see that she was wearing this oversized shirt that was kind of torn from the shoulder. And so I looked over, and I looked over at her, and I can see that she's sitting on the bed with a blanket over her legs as though she was sitting crisscross. And her arms were scratched, and her hair was messy. And that moment, I felt the most rage I've ever felt in my entire life. I felt like I could dig my bare hands into my dad's skin and just tear him into pieces. And I felt heat coming up my neck and through my face, and I felt my eyes welling up. But before I can even react or or say anything, my dad grabs my arm, and in Vietnamese he says, sit down and read these for me. And I look over at my mom, and she smiles sweetly at me, and she goes, go ahead, just translate for him, it's okay, there's nothing there anyways. So I sit down, he hands me the first thing, and then the first thing was a business card, and he says, what is this? And I reach him, it's a chiropractor. He's like, okay, well, what's in the back? And I'm like, it's an appointment, date, and time. It's, I think it's for you, Dad. So he takes it and kind of flips it in front of me, and he hands me another thing, and it's a bank note. And then the next thing is the doctor's note, and I'm here just literally translating word for word any piece or item that's in her purse that has writing on it. And keep in mind, I was eight years old. And half the shit I did not even fucking understand, okay? So I'm just in there making shit up, trying to sound all professional, just hoping that he wouldn't catch that I, I don't even know half the things I'm translating. And I'm praying to God at the same time that I wouldn't find anything that wouldn't incriminate my mom. And then I, I leave. And so the next day was... Monday, and I had to go to school, and I'm sitting in my second grade class, and instead of thinking about recess and painting and all that fun stuff, I'm zoning out and thinking about what I saw the day before and hoping that I wouldn't be called to the principal's office just to be told that I have a dead mother at home. 
And so I get home from school, and shit is still the same. She's still in the bedroom, and I'm pissed. So I'm running around, and I'm looking for my grandma and uncle, who were in and out of the house throughout the day, just pretending they did not know what was going on. And I beg them to stop him, but they just tell me to go to my room. But instead, I ran to a Vietnamese neighbor's house, in the housing development that we lived in. And I knocked on the door and I'm crying and I'm huffing and puffing and I'm like, please come help. And once again, she just shoes me to go back home. So I go back home. And the next day, the last day, he finally let her out. She had lost her job from not showing up. And throughout the next few years, she goes from one job to the other due to similar reasons relating to my dad's jealousy. So fast forward eight years later. Now I'm 16 year old and I'm in high school, living under my dad's seriously ridiculous rules. Like, I shit you not. No friends until I'm 18, and um, no boyfriends until marriage. Whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> so, that said, I get caught hanging out at my boyfriend's house. And I get dragged home, and we're in the driveway, and I knew I was in for it. So I hop out the car, and I book it into my room, and I close and lock the door, and I turn off the lights and jump under my covers as, as though it's like an invisibility cloak or something. And not, in a matter of seconds, like, my dad was on the other side jiggling the door open with a freaking screwdriver, and he breaks in, busts over to my bed, whips the blanket open, and he holds the screwdriver of me, and he takes a heavy end, and he's just taking it to my head, and to my face, and to my body, and at this point, I'm flailing around. I'm grabbing everything I can to cover myself up. I'm grabbing my blanket. I'm grabbing my pillows. I'm grabbing my stuffed animals. I'm on the floor. I'm crawling from one corner to the other. I'm back on the bed. I'm completely dis-fucking-bobulated. I, I have no idea where I'm at in the room, but I somehow managed to run out, and I hear my dad screaming, you're a fucking whore, you're tainted, you're used, you're no good. But I book it, I run out, and I can see my siblings right by the sliding glass door, holding it wide open. And as I'm going for the door, I can feel a handful of my hair grabbed and yanked with just enough momentum for me to land back on the ground and take a couple more blows, but I feel my sister's arm grab onto mine and she yanks me up and she screams, run, towel, run, so I fucking run. I get out the door, I weave through cars, I don't know how many cars we had in the driveway and I jump through bushes that I didn't even know existed and I run up two flights of stairs and I knocked on my neighbor's door. And that night I woke up in a hospital bed with a concussion and I see my mom and a police officer sitting at the end of the bed. And he comes over and he shakes my hands. He starts to ask me questions to get a police report. And as he's writing my answers down, I see on his pad of paper, there's a white piece of paper with kind of like an outline of a human body on it. I can see X's on that human body. And I realize that those X marked the spots of the injuries that I've sustained. And so he leaves. And there's an awkward silence between my mom and I. We just kind of sat there for a second. And then she looks up at me and she goes, are you happy now? He's in jail. What the fuck? 
So he goes to jail for one night. And for the next couple months, he has to take some parenting classes. And he came home with homework and where I had to once again awkwardly translate. And, it's, and I, when I say awkward, I mean awkward. Like, what would you do if your child disobey you? Like, A, would you beat the shit out of them? Like, I'm paraphrasing, but like things like that where I had to translate. And after that, there was a noticeable change in who he was after that whole entire incident. He, in situations where he would be abusive or hurtful, he would actually make it a point to get up and leave, to take a deep breath and to blow off steam or something. But we've never even talked about it. We've never had a chance to hear an apology or just have heart to heart. So I think about it. I think about it all the time. And I think about my mom and I think about how she felt like she couldn't run. This 27-year-old woman who had four kids and no resources. And I think about that eight-year-old girl who kind of watched her sit still. And eight years later, she would run for her own life. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this of course is mia behind me now and we just heard from tal madsen listen you might have heard me talk about it on social media but uh we were really hit hard by taxes this year and uh, so uh, risk is hurting a little bit right now for money so if you uh, love what we do we are still to an extent listener supported So if you go to the support us page at risk-show.com, you can really help us out. Also, we are looking for new advertisers. So if you happen to work for a company that is interested in advertising on podcasts, by all means, poke your boss about it. You can always find us at 
kevin at risk-show.com. Now I'm going to read a list of all the places we are coming next on Sunday, May 15th. We are in Boston, Massachusetts. Boy, those stories are extraordinary. So come on out, Boston. Then on the 20th of May... At the Bell House in Brooklyn, we're going to have our big show celebrating the release of the new book, The Union of the State. Now, there will be video interviews with various state members. Uh, Michael Ian Black and Michael Showalter, I believe, will be there. Janine Garofalo, Seth Herzog, uh, Margaret Cho will be appearing by video. Caroline Ray, she will definitely be there. Uh, It's whatever. Whoever ends up showing up, it's going to be one hell of a night. That is May 20th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On May 21st, we are in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're coming back to Minneapolis. And on May 21st and 22nd, the wonderful Amy Salloway, who has told so many brilliant, beautiful, hilarious, tear-jerking stories on the show before. She is teaching a story studio workshop. If you want to learn how to craft a really compelling story and work on your ability to share it in a compelling way with people, Amy is a fantastic guide to help you do that. And I'm going to be there on May 22nd to give people notes. So Minneapolis folks, check out more information at thestorystudio.org. On May 21st in Los Angeles, we're going to have our last show at the Nerd Melt, at the Nerdist Showroom. And that's going to be a hell of a show. Jen Kirkman will be there, Nicole Byer, Madison Perry. Great show. Come on out, Los Angeles. On June 17th, we are in Philly once again at the Underground Arts. The theme is disgusted. We're still taking pitches, so get those pitches in by May 20th, go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. On June 18th, we have our first L.A. show at the Bootleg Theater, our new home in L.A. June 22nd, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That is going to be an all-funny-stories show. T.S. Madison is going to be there, Josh Gondelman, uh, planning on a whole bunch of wonderful comedic folks. On June 25th, we're in St. Louis, Missouri. We are still taking pitches for that. The theme is worried. Get those pitches in by May 28th. On July 8th, we're in San Francisco. The theme is resonant. Get those pitches in by June 10th. And even if you are not living in one of those cities, if you just want to pitch us a story anywhere in the world, Go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's tips on how to pitch us effectively. You know, we also do radio-style stories, so you don't have to appear in a live show. It could just be me and you working together one-on-one. That's the submissions page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
is a clit bumper.